All right. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Corey Worden. And as always, you're listening to the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialties Health Beat Podcast. We appreciate you joining us today. Today, we have a great episode. Today, we got a really cool guest. We got Norman Ritchie, who runs VPSI and has just an outstanding career. And in addition to all of his great work with human factors and everything he's done with oil and gas and all different sorts of industries and uh, overall risk management, everything that he works on can be directly correlated to healthcare. So he's definitely a fantastic source of information. We're, we're glad to have him. So uh, Norman, short of me speaking for you, if you would, if you can give our listeners a bit about yourself, about your career, you know, where you come from, where you're going, all that good stuff. We, we appreciate it. Well, uh, morning, everybody. And uh, thanks, Corey, for that nice introduction. Uh, yeah. Well, you can probably tell I'm not from around here. Uh, I uh, originally am from Scotland and grew up uh, in a very different environment. But uh, as they say around uh, Texas, I got here as soon as I could. So I'm a mechanical engineer originally, and essentially I'm on my second career. My first career was working in oil and gas. specifically as an engineer, did all kinds of different flavors of engineering within uh, that environment. And they eventually got into capital projects, uh, building offshore facilities and so forth. And as I clawed my way up the project management hierarchy, I picked up responsibility for uh, risk management. And it was a a real interesting combination. And uh, I looked after uh, health and safety and a environmental and also quality, uh, budget and schedule. So what we would nowadays call enterprise risk, but uh, at that time we didn't really have a word for it. So found that to be absolutely fascinating and they eventually jumped the fence from being uh, an oil company guy to to being a consultant. So I've been in the consulting world now, I suppose for about uh, 22, 23 years. uh, as to as to where I'm going, well, you know, getting a bit older every day, and uh, one of these days I'm eventually going to retire and uh, ride my mountain bike all day and uh, work in my yard, and, and I'll be super happy to do that. But uh, while I'm still chugging along, I'm happy to, uh, where possible, uh, use my experience to perhaps save some others coming up behind uh, from suffering the same painful experiences that that I have. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's, you definitely had a a great career and do a lot of great things. Um, I know you're also a ASSP leader. What what roles are you in right now? Well, I'm kind of a backroom troublemaker at the moment. I operate at the uh, section level. Uh, This part of the world, uh, we have a a huge number of ASSB folks and Houston being such a big place, we uh, have not just the chapter, but uh, uh, several fairly large sections. I'm part of the leadership team of the Energy Corridor section. Uh, We have over 300 members in in just that section. the, the main thing we're trying to do right now is get back to, to in-person meetings. It's been 
uh, it's been tough uh, to, to keep the momentum going. But interestingly, we've had a meeting in our section every month without fail for the last five years. So we kind of, the transition to virtual was 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 fairly quick to us, uh, but it turns out the transition back to uh, physical in-person in meetings is, is actually gonna be a little bit tougher, particularly now that we're, we're now facing the expectation of doing kind of hybrid face-to-face uh, -face and, and virtual meetings. Uh, it's gonna be interesting to see how that pans out. So uh, looking, looking forward to, to doing that. Uh, and working out the technology. Yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a lot of evolution going on. But um, yeah, we can we can talk about it a little bit later at the end. But just for now, I know you we've won a, a series of awards lately. So congratulations on that. That's outstanding. Yeah, I was uh, honored to be named. Uh, well, first a uh, safety person of the uh, safety professional of the year for the Gulf. The coast chapter, and then uh, surprise, surprise, turned out to uh, to, to be named uh, spy for uh, Region Three, which is uh, Texas, Arkansas, and uh, Oklahoma, which is uh, a great honor. I was absolutely stunned, since most of the time I'm going around causing trouble and disagreeing with everybody. Uh, it's, it's it's definitely deserved. I know that that was. Uh... One of the one of the first times I met you, I remember very clearly that on the introductions you had said that your uh, your job duties were radical risk management. I said, "Wow, that's that's a cool guy there. We we need to talk more." Well, so, in fact, I, I now is a, an appropriate moment to to do my standard the apology. Uh, I apologize in advance uh, because at some point during this conversation. I'm bound to offend just about everybody on the call because I'm a, a, a big fan of challenging the status quo and, uh, and uh, that un unfortunately uh, we, we find uh, in every organization, not just ASSP, a lot of people who are very firmly attached to the status quo uh, and, and find um, alternative views uh, offensive actually in some cases. Yeah, it's a, it's a good good disclaimer. It's always good, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember that. Well, of course, you and I met for the first time at what I think is probably the the strangest conference I've ever been to. You know, <laughs> so, but uh, um, I remember during that we were talking about high reliability, and um, you had just you had you had just said flat out, you said Heinrich was wrong. <laughs> and I remember saying, "Well, that's okay," you know. <laughs> so, well, it's uh, and I'm still saying that, and it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, the, the society is honouring uh, Fred Manuel at the moment, uh, uh, justifiably so. And, and it was actually a paper that he wrote, uh, gosh, some years ago now, and they showed up in Professional Safety that uh, that, that really uh, cemented that for me. Uh, that uh, you know we've we've got. And people are still talking about this. In fact, it's still being talked about and taught in in, um, in some safety uh, courses in colleges and universities and so on, which is absolutely outrageous. But uh, yeah, it's still received wisdom in many quarters. Say. But uh, yeah, so if anyone's interested in that, uh, go looking for Fred Manuel's uh, paper on that. Uh, gosh, it's about 10 or 12 years ago. It's one, of, it's one of the few papers that when I read it, I thought, man, I wish I had written that. 
yeah, yeah, interesting, definitely interesting. And that's, you're right, you know, there's certainly a lot of, you know, a lot of legacy that still relies a lot on on the Heinrich model. <clears throat> well, and, and intuitively, you know, the idea of a triangle or a pyramid, uh, it does have some, it does have some value as, as, a, as, a, as a model because clearly there are more lower consequence events than there are catastrophic consequence events. But the, the idea that there's some kind of golden ratio. In fact, I saw on LinkedIn yesterday, someone, someone posted an absolutely uh, fabulous uh, graphic that, that had those, uh, that had those um, ratios uh, built into it. And, uh, you know, I could spend my entire life uh, contradicting people on LinkedIn, but uh, I, I try not to because you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, social media is a, it's definitely one of those environments where there's plenty of, plenty of good discussions to be had and, and lots of misinformation to be found. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, there's, there's outliers and everything. So having that kind of, you know, fixed ratio is uh, a lot of times there's, there's plenty of things to counter that. But uh, speaking of that kind of thing, so, you know, in all your work, I know you've done done a lot of work in a lot of different industries, and uh, I know you've done great great presentations on human factors. So what uh, what types of hazards have you seen the most throughout the years? What are the kind of things that you've seen that typically you've, you've worked with? Well, that's a great question because the answer is that it has changed over time, and if you look at uh, if you look at uh, if you chart um, for the last 40 or so years, uh, risk in the workplace, whether you, you use say, uh, DOL statistics or whatever metric you want to use really, you'll see that over that length of time, um, the, the, the risk in the workplace has, has reduced uh, quite, quite dramatically uh, in, in, most, uh, in most cases. I mean, there are still some inherently high hazard industries where that's not the case, but in general, and so where we used to see a whole lot of stuff blowing up and going on fire and, and, and so forth, uh, there have been a whole lot of improvements in uh, plant and equipment and then uh, process, business management systems and, and work control processes and so on and so forth. And, they, and so, yeah, the, uh, the, that's ref that's reflected really in what we as as uh, safety professionals end up working on, and um, I, I think more and more we find ourselves working on uh, human performance challenges and trivial nonsense that we shouldn't be even paying any attention to, um, just just because we've reduced the the workplace uh, the, the the workplace risk to this uh, to this. Arguably, uh, actually, uh, and here's another thing to, to throw in, uh, the term ALARP or ALARP, uh, referring to risk being as low as reasonably practicable. Uh, in many environments, we've actually pretty much done what we can to provide uh, low risk context in which we expect the, the work activities to, to be done. And so related to that, more and more we're seeing events occur 
where human performance is the driving force of that unplanned event. So thinking, thinking of it in a slightly different way, we have provided a context or an environment for the work to be done in, which should, and that's a, that's a, a dangerous word, which should be sufficient to get the work done without an unplanned event. And yet, something has gone wrong. And when we dig into it, what we find is that it's because we have humans. Unavoidably, we have humans in the workplace, and humans, by definition, are humans, and are therefore subject to all the frailties that uh, that that that, uh, that, that uh, brings along with. So it's kind of um, frustrating in in some ways, but it's interesting because now we can start to to delve into some of these human performance challenges and see what we can do to make the workplace actually accommodate the humans within it uh, rather than try and force them to um, to do things that, uh, as it turns out, may or may not be effective risk management measures. So yeah, it's changed. It's absolutely fascinating. And one, one of the things that, that we, so, so in our little company here, we look at thousands of incident investigations every year uh, from lots of different industries, lots of different companies. And what we're seeing is that folks are generally struggling with this humans in the workplace idea that uh, <clears throat> it's uh, it's really uh, too easy uh, to, to use the, 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 the analytical tools that we've used in the past, which tend to, to, to be system-based or, or be looking for systemic uh, uh, challenges. And, you end up um, uh, you end up adding more stuff to procedures or more uh, more detail or you need somebody else's signature on on something before you get started or you need to have another meeting or uh, some other kind of system based uh, additional control which as you add to these uh, as you add to these processes and procedures you actually are adding more opportunity and more uh, temptation really to deviate from those. So it's kind of an interesting challenge. There's actually another challenge in the background here too, which is that we don't agree on the words. Um, the, uh, the ergonomists are actually kind of annoyed with us uh, uh, at the moment because they've been talking about human factors for many years but they've been talking about human factors in the sense of how the, 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 the ergonomics uh, of a situation or the, the human machine interface uh, um, is organized for, for, or optimized. And, and here we are now um, grabbing a hold of that term human factors and applying it to, to a very behavioral kind of uh, area. So once again, we get mixed up in the vocabulary. Uh, so now I've started to talk about it in terms of human performance factors because that upsets the autonomous less and is actually a little bit uh, more precise in, in what we're talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when we break that down. Uh, so if I put that in a healthcare context, you know, like you were saying there, you have the, that initial set of, of risk management controls, 
you know, in our case, so let's say we're talking about um, safe patient handling or, or patient mobility, then of course the the fundamental of that would be to provide the appropriate equipment so that we're able to move patients you know, without putting the full weight on the on the employee. So once you've got that in place, then like you said there, you know, ideally we would have made the environment and the conditions as safe as possible and lowered the well, risk. As safe as, as safe as practicable. That's not it's not the same thing. You know, as safe as possible is and this is one of the one of the other areas that we have to be a little bit nuanced in our thought processes is that that there's no such thing as zero risk. And so there's going to be some level of residual risk in every activity, whether it's work or not work, there's residual risk in everything you do. And the question is, have you brought that risk to a point where you're okay with it? Is it inside of your risk tolerance threshold or or your risk appetite? Uh, but that's a great example, and and, and yet you find uh, you find not just acute injuries in patient handling, but also chronic uh, problems because uh, 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 your 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 employees are overdoing it, not not necessarily in a single huge way, but they're overdoing it today, tomorrow, three times on Sunday, again on Wednesday next week, and so on and so forth, and, and building up the, these chronic problems, and and so there's a there's a uh, one, of, one of the things I want to, to suggest to everybody is that you don't try and reinvent the wheel, that there's a great deal of really good information out in the big white world that you can grab a hold of and try and incorporate into, into your thinking if you're interested in starting to look at these human performance factors. And they, you know, they say that um, uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but I think the ultimate a form of flatter, flattery is actually just uh, stealing uh, other people's stuff uh, when it's in the public domain, obviously. And so a couple of organizations that, uh, that produce some amazing stuff in human performance, uh, the uh, Energy Institute, uh, which uh, which is based in, in Europe and uh, sponsored by a whole bunch of, of huge companies, mostly in the energy space, and uh, uh, there's a, another organization with the amusing name HPOG, um, H-P-O-G, Hotel, Papa, Oscar, Golf. Uh, and they also have a ton of stuff um, out there on the internet for, for people to use. And I, I say that because I'm going to now talk about uh, human performance in, in the terms that the Energy Institute use. And actually the UK Health and Safety Executive and a number of other organizations around the world. And that's to say that um, when you when you identify uh, a human performance problem, uh, there are really only four uh, labels that you can four main labels that you can attach to that, um, and those are uh, slip, lapse, mistake, or violation. And of course, nothing's ever as simple as that. But you can think of the slip and the lapse in, in fairly straightforward terms. Those are where uh, a person had an intention to do the right thing, but somehow managed to do something different. So a, a, a trivial example of that, but a very real example is I have a lot of trouble buying yogurt. And that's because I go to the store and I'm looking for a particular type. I'm looking for whole milk, plain yogurt. And probably 50% of the time I come home with whole milk, vanilla flavored yogurt. 
because I've reached I've, and I've, I've reached for the right one. I know it. I know I've reached for the right one and I end up bringing the wrong one home because the, the packaging is so similar. It's, it's, anyway, so moments of forgetfulness, moments of inattention, those are, those are slips and lapses. And because of the way the human is constructed, they are absolutely unavoidable. You can't prevent, you cannot prevent slips and lapses. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. I, I hear so many people say that all incidents are preventable, but that's simply not true. And this is one of the reasons that not all incidents are preventable. If you have humans involved, they will, your best trained people, your most experienced people, your most valuable, your most skilled, even when they're not tired, even when they're not stressed, will have between five and 10 slips and lapses per hour each. And most of them are absolutely trivial. But if you start doing some math here, think about that. If you've got a 20, in healthcare, of course, you've got lots of 24-hour operations. Think about that, that for every employee, between five and 10 slips and lapses per hour, multiply that by the number of employees you've got in your organization, you can see that you've probably got millions of slips and lapses going on per annum, every one of which could, but generally does not lead to an unplanned event that may or may not have consequences. So a really important point to grasp is that humans are human, and because of the way the brain is constructed, uh, we have uh, we have this uh, this inherent weakness that we will have moments of inattention, we will have moments of forgetfulness. Now, a book recommendation, uh, if you want to get into that in more detail, um, there's a, a gentleman called Day. Day Kahneman, who uh, wrote an absolutely fabulous book called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, I warn you, the print is quite small and there are many, many pages, but it's absolutely fascinating and gives a tremendous amount of insight into, into the reasons why uh, we behave the, the, the way that we do. Okay, so that's one side of the, of the, of the human performance uh, world. The other side is where a person acts in a deliberate fashion, but we would rather they had done something else. Let me say that again. They act in a deliberate way, an intentional way, but we would rather they had done something else. And within that side of the human performance spectrum, we've got two things. We call, the, we call them mistakes and we call them violations. Now, mistakes are kind of information-based or, or uh, they can, they can be um, incorrect procedure, a lack of information, uh, data overload. I mean, we all suffer from that nowadays, right? There's so much information, we don't, we don't have the ability to process it all. It could be bad training, uh, it could be bad competency maintenance, uh, it could be miscommunication, it could be you're trying to apply pre-existing knowledge to a novel situation where it turns out it's not actually applicable. Mistakes are generally information-based. But then on the other side, we have everyone's favorite, the violation. Now, a question that we all need to confront is, what do we do when we encounter a violation? What's our most, uh, what's our most natural response to a violation? And in many organizations, it's some flavor of discipline. But it turns out that of course, nothing, as I said, is as simple as it ought to be or could be. And so violations, uh, there are at least 
six different kinds of violations with four kind of flavors attached to them. And most of these are actually driven by the circumstances in which the work is done. So, for example, um, there's such a thing as a, a, an organizational benefit violation. And what that means is that for some reason, the worker thinks that what they're doing, although they know it to be against the process or policy or procedure or whatever, because they think they're doing the right thing for the organization. Now, they may be right or they may be wrong. There's another category where situational is called, where because of circumstances kind of imposed on them, they just can't do the job the way that it ought to be done. So an example there is where you have insufficient uh, manning levels. I know this to be a, a problem in, in some areas of healthcare where you ju there just aren't enough people around to do the job the way it's supposed to be done. And I, I, of course, that overlaps into organizational benefit um, uh, because the, uh, the, the folks are trying to do their jobs even within the constraints uh, that are presented by, for example, um, non-availability of equipment, the equipment doesn't work properly, the equipment's broken, there aren't enough people there to do it, and so on and so on and so on. Or it takes too long. Uh, that's that's uh, an, another possibility. So these these are some examples, and, and as I say, there's lots of places you can go to, to dig more, more deeply into this if you wish. But the the, the challenge then is if you identify that you've got a human performance problem, if you're going to develop a corrective action for that problem, you need to understand which one of these problems it is that you're confronted with. So we actually need to be thinking about the, the gathering of the information, the data, evidence, if you will, to, to actually differentiate between all these things. And uh, that in itself can, can be a challenge because of course a corrective action to be a real corrective action has to be relevant to the problem, meaning that you have to know what the problem really is. So we have to be real careful to make sure that we are uh, gathering information that's going to, going to enable us to, uh, uh, to, to be honest about the quality of analysis we could do, uh, in, especially in terms of making sure that we're trying to address the right human performance problem. So interesting stuff. But I, I suppose the most important thing I've said here is don't try and reinvent the wheel. Go out there and, uh, and dig through what's already available. Uh, there is some really great stuff. And it's a, and don't make it too complicated. That's, that's the, 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 other, the other thing really is that you can, you can go into all kinds of uh, depths in psychology and the and how the brain works and so on and so forth and it's absolutely fascinating but it's a it's a real it's a real rabbit trail uh and they you'll find yourself uh, you'll find yourself much more um shall we say educated but it's not necessarily sufficiently pragmatic to be useful in the workplace and i'm a big fan of pragmatism yeah absolutely that, that's great, great input for sure. 
you know, it's interesting as I'm thinking about that, you know, like we were saying there, you know, you had that first step of, of getting the risk, you know, as, as low as, as low as reasonable, you know, as low as feasible. And so, of course, come on, Corey. Yeah, it's not, you've got to be so careful here because there's, that it, as low as reasonably practicable is is where you have to balance the the, the cost of the, the the and I'm using cost in a very big sort of way here that, that it's about the it, you you can't in a business setting and that's true in healthcare as it is anywhere else you can't in a business setting minimize risk you have to bring it to a point where it's okay. Uh, and that, of course, has say has a different meaning in different kinds of organisations. So it's not it's not bringing the risk as low as is feasible, but is as low as is practicable for the business environment that you're in. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're you're definitely correct there. The the wording is important. And we, we've had a lot of those conversations in the last year with the pandemic, and you know the. It's a little different context. We were talking about it in terms of balancing the, you know, immediate operational safety with the long-term strategic safety of the the full emergency management construct. You know, so for example, like you, like you were saying there, when you're talking about something like like COVID-19 testing, you know, this time uh, last April when the pandemic first began, then, you know, there are situations there where the the way to lower the risk you know the only the only way to make the risk as low as possible would be to not do the operation you know because right. Right. Do the operation, you're going to have people that are potentially infectious right there in your face and there's going to be potential exposures so we have to make the risk as low as we're able to while still accomplishing the mission that's exactly it that's exactly it and and it's a it's a i like to uh, I, I, another thing that, uh, that that may be of interest uh, or or useful as a as a thought experiment is that as as safety professionals, our job is not to eliminate risk but to manage risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You know, that was a lot of the things that you know I, I always try to impart with the pandemic was that. You know, if we if we don't do the operation, then it'll be safer for the people here and now. But then we won't have the data as far as infection rates. We won't be able to get vaccines, all these different things that are going to make it more dangerous for the greater population in the coming months. So it's all like you said, it's all managing that risk and balancing it so that we're able to accomplish the objective and do it as safely as as safely as we can within the context of the of the situation. Definitely. Yeah, and, and this, and again, this is uh, this this feeds into the the notion that um, not all incidents are preventable um, because there's actually a population of incidents that we accept as possibilities by virtue of risk management. Uh, and a, an interesting way to visualize that is to think of a traditional risk matrix, which might be, I don't know, let's say five by five, and it's got a, a, a red bit a yellow bit and a green bit, and a, the green bit generally means those are acceptable risks. And what, if you turn that around, uh, that's telling you is that this is a population of unplanned events that the organization has accepted as being okay. And of course, there's a form of, of um, 
organizational schizophrenia here because if you look at that green area of your risk matrix and look at the most significant, the most severe consequence that's in the green, in many organizations, it's a single fatality. And it kind of has to be because otherwise you'd never be able to have driving in your operations. Um, but the, of course, the schizophrenia comes in where we look ahead and we do risk assessment of a, an upcoming or potential activity and we say, well, it's in the green. But then when an event actualizes that, that may have been in the green looking forward and somebody gets significantly injured by an extremely unlikely event, of course, the organization goes nuts. You absolutely can't have that. And so there's a there's kind of a, a logical disconnect there between our uh, looking forward and doing risk assessment versus our response to unplanned events uh, if and when they do occur. The, the population of incidents that occur because we've accepted that risk is actually significantly larger than the unpreventable population. Kind of an interesting um, and, and somewhat eye-opening insight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the balance is important there. You know, um, so I know you gave a lot of great examples there as far as, you know, how those human performance factors come into place and how those can be, how those can be optimized. And I know you talked about, you know, seeking out, you know, pre-existing research and, and uh, you know, different methodology that's out there. Uh, you know, open open source information. Did you have any other any other advice or any other um, recommendations for for people that are seeking to to improve in this area? Uh, one is uh, yeah, for sure. One is uh, be ready uh, for the organization to push back uh, because there's uh, in in. Well, and there are a number of problems, and and one is that in many organizations there's kind of a an organizational uh, machismo, um, which uh, and you th this could be when a violation is encountered. For example, the first reaction is to fire somebody or send them home for a few days uh, or put a letter in their file and so on. Uh, and it's actually very difficult to to counter that kind of reaction. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the second challenge really is to, to try to um, get the organization to concentrate on the stuff that matters. Uh, so, for example, I, I know that uh, in, in healthcare, uh, needle sticks are, are, a, are a major concern, and that's absolutely fine. But if you have an employee who needs a couple of stitches because they reached into the desk drawer and encountered a pair of scissors that happened to be open, that's not really a big deal. I'm sorry, you know, send the person some flowers, um, everybody sign a card and let's move on. Um, but I mean, that's a, that's a real example. It's actually a Dilbert cartoon about this example. Um, where uh, the organization went completely bananas over this um, due to it having stopped their uh, days since last uh, recordable injury uh, clock. 
which was at some outrageous number, and, and this poor employee was vilified um, uh, as a result of this. Uh, and the um, all of the sharp objects in everybody's desk drawers were confiscated, and they just and they were all handed, uh, you know, these safety scissors that uh, your kids get at kindergarten. Uh, so, so that that that's a, again an extreme example, but the, a lot of organisations um, find themselves uh, over concerning them, uh, themselves with things that in in the big picture actually don't matter. And an interesting thought experiment is um, to, uh, to 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 pause for a moment and say, okay, we just had this incident. Uh, this employee got a couple of stitches uh, due to this scissor interaction um let's let's say for a moment consider if we do nothing about this if we simply move on uh having sent the flowers and card obviously let's say that we do nothing we move on and let's place ourselves six months down the road and imagine that we're doing a risk assessment of reaching into our desk drawer six months from now having done nothing about this incident that just occurred where would this activity fall on the risk matrix and the answer of course is it's deeply deeply green it's forest green so that tells you that reaching into the desk drawer is an activity that may have some inherent residual risk but that risk is well below your tolerance threshold therefore the logical thing to do about this incident is nothing and of course, that's a difficult message to put forth, but, but, but organizations waste an enormous amount of time and energy and resources uh, looking at trivial stuff that, uh, that, that could probably be more uh, usefully expended uh, looking for ways to make the, the work activities um, more amenable to the humans that are engaged in them uh for example there are a couple of great terms going around uh, fail safe and fail soft or fail softly uh, the idea being that, uh, that the workplace and the work activities are constructed in such a way that when people exhibit their humanity with slips and lapses it doesn't actually matter that much um so you know that let's let's try and concentrate on the stuff that matters uh, and not the stuff that gets everybody all indignant and upset. Uh, and it, we we had another interesting one just a couple of weeks ago where uh, a air freshener was sprayed in a hallway, and somehow uh, uh, an employee contrived to, as they were walking down that hallway uh, later, uh, find a spot of this stuff on the floor that was enough to make them slip fall over and break the wrist. You know, I'm sorry, that's 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 tough on that employee, but um, let's do nothing about that. Instead, this particular organization had a huge, uh, they formed a team. Those are words that should strike fear into the heart of every uh, safety professional. Let's form a team. Um, they formed a team and they, they sallied forth uh, armed with an extremely sophisticated so-called root cause analysis tool spent a couple of days on it and um, when you go visit this office facility now you'll see that they have plug-in air fresheners everywhere yeah was that a great uh, use of uh, time and energy and uh, resources 
well, I guess if if you work in an organization that uh, for whom that was a good investment, uh, then I'd like to hear from you because clearly you've got lots of money to spend on consultants. It's interesting, definitely, especially with the slip trips and falls, because you know, to your point there, you know, it is, of course, it's it's not unheard of, you know, for there to be a a small spill or a small wet spot that causes a slip and that causes a an unfortunate injury. I've I've seen that myself, you know, but the the reality is that you know there are so many different possible causes of you know wet spots on floors that. Um, you know, to continue to to isolate and neutralize every one of those causes, like you said, it's gonna it's gonna take a indefinite amount of time and energy there, and it it it's got to be balanced with the you know with the need for that. Well, and there's a there's a kind of a corollary though, which is that um, uh, you, you really need to hear about these things uh, organizationally, and you need to record these things organizationally, and you need to look for trends. Because if people are falling over in the hallways every day, then that's a that's a problem. Then that that uh, justifies a considerable amount of expensive time, energy, and resources. But if it's an if it's an extremely isolated incident, if it's a one-off that you can't really visualize uh, having a high probability of reoccurrence, and in that instance, I think. Uh, it, it, the consequence that actualized was about the worst consequence you could really expect. Um, you know, walking down the hallway is in the green on the risk matrix. But yeah, not yeah. if people are falling down every single day, then there's something needs to be dealt with. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It's again, it goes back to that balance, like you were talking about earlier. You know, being able to look at the being able to look at the whole situation, you know, see what the what the possible outcome is and how that outcome's potential to to reoccur. And you know, it's interesting. That's one of the things I talk about quite a bit is when we talk about frequency and severity. I'm, I'm interested in your your thoughts. Is you know, when we look at this in terms of everyday, you know, everyday workplace safety or or even at home safety, and then you've also got your contingency, you know, emergency response, whether it be a pandemic or whether it be a hazmat incident or anything in between, or workplace violence for that matter. You know, when you look at that on a daily basis, you've got these things that are very frequent. You know, we see these hazards all the time, but to your point a minute ago, the overall severity to the individual may be high. You know, you may have a, a broken bone or you may have even a hospitalization in a, in a really severe situation. But the overall severity to the organization is is relatively low. Like what I mean by that is, you know, you may have one of these incidents, but it's not going to shut down the hospital. And so if those things aren't handled and they have a potential for reoccurrence, like you said there, if you have a potential, people are going to be falling over all the time or having needle sticks or having chemical exposures or disease exposures, then it, it elevates up. And then you have a situation where it creates a, a, a visitor or a public safety issue, you know, right, right, issue. and that's one of the interesting things about risk that uh, that uh, I, well, there's a I don't know if any of you have ever talked to an actuary. Um, they're they're uh, they're kind of interesting for a short period of time, 
but uh, what what those kind of conversations reveal to you is that there's a world of reference between risk when it's considered a kind of a societal or or large group level versus risk as it's considered um, at an individual level. And, and Corey, you just highlighted it uh, in an excellent way there that um, for the enterprise, uh, somebody falling over um, due to a spot of air uh, air freshener uh, liquid on the floor for the organization is no big deal, but here's a person now with a broken wrist and probably going to be off work for some time. And, and that's kind of the, that actually uh, feeds into why organizations overreact to injury events, um, because the human is essentially a herd animal, and we don't like to see members of the herd getting hurt. So we have a kind of visceral response to these things, which then kind of escalates the, the, their significance undeservedly in many instances from a logical perspective, but we just can't help ourselves. So it's, it's um, yeah, you're absolutely right that uh, for the enterprise, these kind of events are not that significant. But again, got to highlight if they're happening with sufficient frequency, then in aggregate, they potentially do have some uh, significance for the enterprise. Another somewhat controversial thing for, for me is that I try not to use the term safety at all um, because it, it's um, it's very misleading. It, it, it brings people to, to the thought that there's such a thing as absolute safety where there absolutely is not. And um, again, it's a, a case of, a, a you know, the word risk has unfortunately been hijacked by the, the insurance people, but they, uh, where we are starting to hijack the term human factors, uh, they've hijacked a term that we should really be using all the time, which is risk rather than safety. And it's kind of a, it's, it's kind of an interesting experiment to do. Uh, and I, I recommend this to everybody: is anytime you think about using the word safety, use the word risk instead, and and see how the thought of that combination of probabilities and outcomes. See how that changes your thought process because it's an entirely different thing. And Corey, you asked about you asked about the the, the notions of probability and consequences. Say, uh, to start with consequences, uh, is there any rational reason why we should always think about the worst case? And I ask that as a Scottish person. You know, the weather in Scotland is so terrible that we're awful, awful pessimists. And so we can see we can see a fatality in every event. We can see a route to disaster in every set of circumstances. But is that reasonably speaking the most likely outcome? And this is one of the sort of weaknesses of the way that we approach risk assessment um, in, a, in a kind of a two-dimensional way with the uh, traditional risk matrix and so forth. But they're, they're actually probably three levels of probability uh, built into the risk matrix. There's the probability of a set of circumstances arising. There's the probability that something will go wrong. And then there's a huge spectrum of possible outcomes, and, uh, which is kind of a multidimensional set of probabilities. You know, the same event can be a near miss or a fatality or even a multiple fatality or burn the whole place down. The same event uh, it has once once you've had the event, in some respects, you've lost control of where the outcomes are going to take you. So we build 
these multiple levels of probability into this two-dimensional picture of the risk matrix. Anyway, to, to get back to the question, the, 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 uh, the worst possible outcome in every incident is disaster, whether it's fatality or burn the place down or, or have a huge spill or whatever, whatever. But we, we can't operate considering the, wor the, the, the worst case outcome all the time. We have to back off from that. And when we're doing risk uh, assessment, we tend to do that in a collaborative way where we come to some kind of consensus on, okay, what's, what's the most likely outcome here? And I, I think we're, as, as safety professionals or risk management professionals, I think we tend to be overly pessimistic because most times the outcomes are less severe. It, it almost goes back to the Heinrich question that we were talking about earlier, that the vast majority of events uh, have low-level consequences. On the probability side, well, that's an exciting one, isn't it? Because probability, uh, you, you can, uh, I sometimes use the term opinioneering when assessing probability uh, and consequences, because in, in many senses, um, we are expressing an opinion when we talk about probability. Um, one of the key things about residual risk, for example, is that it means that every time you do the activity, you essentially are rolling the dice. Uh, now, there may be many-sided dice that you're rolling, and most of the time when you roll the dice, the universe is going to be kind to you, and you're going to get your activity done without any kind of an unplanned event. There are, however, going to be occasions where you roll the dice and you get snake eyes and something bad happens. Here's the problem, is that we tend to use our past experience to judge the future probability. And that's really not how probability works. It's kind of a sobering thought, really. So it may be that you do a risk assessment, you decide something is in the green, you go ahead and do the activity, and the universe decides to be unkind to you on your first go around. And what does that tell you about your risk assessment? Does it tell you you were right, or does it tell you you were wrong? Actually, it doesn't tell you either of those things, because in, inherent in this risk analysis you've done is the idea that it could go either way. And so when you're doing risk assessment, you're never right and you're never wrong. You've just done an assessment. And then you go ahead and do the job and you either get it uh, get it the way you want it, or the universe is unkind to you and something nasty happens. Fascinating stuff, Riss. If you yeah. ever see me at a party, steer clear because I tell you what, I could talk about risk all day and all night. Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting. Yeah, that's the, the situation I've always, you know, the extension of that model is that, you know, you've got the You've got the lower frequency, but the higher severity. You know, it goes up to the facility or the public safety issue. Then, if you're talking about a, a disease exposure, you know, if you've got 
unchecked tuberculosis exposures or unchecked influenza, or in the case like we've seen in the last year, the last uh, 20 months, you know, COVID-19, you know, then it gets up into an infection prevention and control issue, which is lower frequency, but much higher severity. And then it gets up to the, the lowest frequency, but the highest severity, which is the full emergency management construct, which can go from local all the way to global, as we've seen in the, the last 20 months. Right. And it down right. the whole I, so a, a, a philosophical question for you is, uh, is frequency the same thing as probability? That's a good question. We could talk about that one all day too, but uh, yeah, and, uh, and that's an interesting um, one of the advantages of, of thinking about things in terms of, of uh, preventability and significance is that it enables you to get ready for these highly unlikely events that are high consequence. It's why we have um, EMS. It's why we have fire departments and so on. Is that that we? It's very unlikely your house will burn down. But should it go on fire, you really want somebody to show up and try and help you uh, put the fire out. Uh, it's highly unlikely, and yet we're ready for it uh, to some extent, at least uh, if and when it, it does occur. And so that's an acknowledgement that uh, that stuff is going to happen sometimes, and you're going to have to be ready to uh, um, to, to deal. But uh, yeah. What you what you're saying in a sense there also is is you're talking about surprises, stuff that uh, that you didn't expect to happen, and you have to kind of scramble in order to to handle those things when they do. So I think uh, uh, the COVID uh, probably falls into that category where, uh, as you said earlier, uh, Corey, you're you're trying to to make up as you go along. Uh, you're trying to risk risk manage, risk assess, risk manage, risk manage, risk assess uh, from a very unclear initial position. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the ongoing ongoing risk management is very important there, and that goes on even now. You know, I'm sure you've seen with the you know with with the people you work with. You know, even now, as we continue down this road, you know, the the situation is not the same as it was this time last year or or even a few months ago. You know, the vaccinations have have helped. And yet we still have, you know, a good percentage of the population is unvaccinated. We still have variants coming about. So it's a constant assessment to figure out where we're going to go next as far as the, the risk controls. But um yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm absolutely fine. I'm going to be in. I hope everyone listening today uh, is going to be in Austin for the uh, SSP um, Safety 21. It's going to be absolutely fascinating to see how a large number of uh, safety professionals behave in a uh, in a group setting like that. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you're you're right. Definitely, it's going to be a there's a lot for sociologists to look at these days, for sure. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're, uh, we're taking our booth to that conference. So everybody who's listening, please come on by and say hello, and and uh, and we can we can talk about risk. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's in our in our backyard, just a couple hours away. That'll be good. I'll be there myself. But uh, well, heck, we're talking about a lot of good stuff. You have excellent insights. So with all that being said, you know, we talked about 
things that people can look for in the organization. But what kind of advice would you give to uh, either either safety pros or people that are trying to get into the career field? What advice would you give them for professional development, ways to, to build their career? Well, I, I'm kind of biased in this respect, but I'd say get yourselves to to your local uh, chapter or, or section and uh, and talk to the people there. I, I think one of the one of the things that this last year of doing meetings virtually has has informed me in a much more profound way is that the the most important part of our meetings is not the technical talk or, uh, or 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 that sort of stuff it's the networking it's the it's the it's the getting with people who are not you and sharing experiences and asking advice and they and i think that is that's a, it's very easy to get stuck in a bubble and i think that's happened to a greater extent in the last uh, 12 14 18 months than I've, I've seen previously, that everyone's been so busy, uh, figuratively speaking, uh, fighting fires and just sitting on Zoom meetings for nine hours a day that they've kind of um, lost track of their own personal development. And I think I think we need to, to kind of jolt ourselves and each other out of that and get ourselves, say, uh, back to, to mixing it up a bit, uh, to, to having these face-to-face um, opportunities to to just chat, to share experiences and share knowledge, and 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 I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it enormously. The uh, uh, we uh, we occasionally have to be thrown out of the rooms uh, that we use for our meetings because the the people are so busy yakking and uh, uh, they they don't want to leave. And I think that's one of the most important things that. Uh, up and coming, uh, or even actually, it's important for up and coming uh, safety professionals to do for their development. And it's a duty, I think, and a responsibility for those of us with gray hair and no hair to be on the other end of those uh, interactions and uh, and helping the folks that are, are trying to, to move on up through the profession. But once again, I'd also like to say, do not reinvent the wheel and don't absolutely don't get sucked into the uh, what I like to call the safety priesthood these people that use uh, nomenclature and vocabulary that's uh, inaccessible to the common man or or has special meaning to, uh, to to those of us in the profession that is different from what the words actually mean that's another argument that uh, you regularly see on on, on uh, social media where uh, People are talking about uh, terms like root cause and arguing about whether there's any such thing as a root cause and so on. So try and avoid that kind of specialist language uh, because you'll end up um, you'll end up being a safety cop rather than an integrated part of the operation. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that. You know, I've seen a lot of times where um, you know it's it's very possible that you know, people can get get so hung up on the technical aspects that they forget that the rest of the organization has no idea what they're talking about. 
and so yeah, and the 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 root cause is actually a great example because you'll hear uh, you'll hear upper management talking about the root cause, and um, you know that's just not how the universe works, really. Uh, and the you know as an example, using continuing with that example, I try and talk about correctable cause rather than root cause because it's what philosophically speaking, when you do an incident investigation, the objective is to either prevent a reoccurrence of the unplanned event or reduce its probability to a point where you're okay with it. Um, and so what you're looking for in that causal chain is a correctable cause that will achieve that objective. Uh, we as HSE professionals understand what we mean when we say root cause, but the rest of the world grabs a hold of the literal meaning of the words there, and they have a different understanding of it. So we need to be real careful about that kind of language. And even though, I, again, going back to the word safety, you know, that conjures up in people's minds um, the idea that uh, we can make them safe, which is just not true. We can make the risk that they're exposed to less, but we cannot eliminate it. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's one of the things we, we had kind of talked about a little bit earlier with the, you know, the only way to lower the risk at that level would be just not to do the operation, you know, just complete risk avoidance. Uh, but then, of course, there's there's consequences for that. You know, you don't achieve the objectives, you don't meet the goals, whatever whatever the case is. And so that's got to be got to be looked at. And that's something we've been talking about also lately is, you know, the and this does happen i'm I'm sure um that we want to watch out for ourselves is that we don't seek to make to make something so safe that that nothing else happens you know we say okay well there's there's no way that anybody's gonna get hurt but we're also not going to accomplish anything else um i saw a interesting publication there's a a phd named david kilcullen have, have you have you seen him yeah i think i've seen him on linkedin Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he's a he does a lot of work with the military. He's a, he's a he was an Australian infantry officer by trade, and then he, he's done a lot of work with counterinsurgency through Afghanistan and Iraq and over the years. And um, that's one of the things he was talking about with these situations where you're trying to where you're trying to work against a um, uh, an insurgency, for lack of a better word. So you can set up checkpoints, you know, and you can do all of these different things to prevent violence but of course the flip side to that is that now people can't get through the city they can't get to work on time you know so you've made everything so difficult that it, it's almost it's almost equally hazardous uh so same kind of thing with safety we look at is that you know like you were saying it is possible to make something so safe that nothing else happens so we, we want to be cautious about that or yeah and 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 what that does is actually encourages violations because they're the people that you have in your workplace uh, generally are there to try and get the job done and they are motivated to do so and they will they will use their ingenuity to try to get the job done despite all of these obstacles you put in front of them 
And so you'll end up with these uh, organizational benefit violations where people, uh, so, so they again have taken a risk. The vast majority of the time it will have gone okay. So it becomes a kind of normalized deviance and they, and then one day it doesn't go okay. And so the organization leaps on these people and pummels them because there's a violation. But what the organization is failing to observe is that that uh, violation is at least partly due to um, restrictions that the organization has placed on getting the job done successfully. So I had an extreme example of that in my first career. It's kind of interesting now looking back on my first career when I was say when I was say working um, in, in the oil company that uh, there was one location where there was so much bureaucracy uh, involved in doing construction work that it would often be lunchtime before we actually turned a wrench. That would take that long to to get through all of the paperwork and meetings and approvals and so on and so forth that were necessary to actually go to work in this particular uh, facility. So yeah, we've got to be real careful that we uh, that we don't. Um, and and I, actually, that gets me. Uh, out yeah, here we go. We could have a whole new discussion now about high uh, the, the concept of, of the HRO, the high reliability organization, which uh, um, I, I just um, it, it drives me nuts because we have this notion. We have the we have all these fighter pilots and special forces guys uh, showing up trying to convince us to turn ourselves into high reliability organizations, and they. It turns out that the environment they come from is actually not high reliability organization, but that there are high reliability operations within that organization. And they're surrounded by what I like to call the donut of chaos. That there's, uh, so, so what inspired me to this is we ended up working on a nuclear power generation facility in, uh, in Canada. And so you, you you look at nuclear power and you think there's an HRO right there, but sure enough, there's a set of high reliability operations uh, surrounding maintaining the integrity of the core and looking looking after the nasty radioactive stuff. But it's surrounded by all this nonsense, like uh, like you see in any other workplace. People are dropping tools on each other. People are tripping over things. Uh, they're running forklifts into walls, cranes are falling over. All of the normal stuff goes on in these environments. Uh, similarly, uh, similarly in commercial aviation, you think of commercial aviation as being a high reliability organization, but it's not when you draw the envelope larger than getting a plane full of people from A to B. That is a high reliability operation. You would not, for example, want to be a ramp worker you're an ex-Air Force guy, aren't you? You wouldn't want to be. You wouldn't want to be a ramp worker. It's, it's carnage on the ramp, absolute carnage. Uh, but the I, but but the activity of getting a plane load of people from Houston to Detroit is an HRO in the sense of being a high reliability operation within this larger context, which is not an HRO. So if any of you are intimidated about the idea of being an HRO, you're probably already HRO in the sense that you have high reliability operations handling your the, the, the red bits of your risk matrix. 
So be reassured that you're probably as HRO now as you actually ever need to be. And uh, you don't need to feel intimidated by these guys showing up and uh, trying to uh, sell you extremely expensive um, consulting services, although they do have great stories. They do have great stories. That's interesting. Yeah, like you said, we can definitely talk about that all day. Um, but yeah, the the example I have for that, you know, is if we talk about, you know, for example, the uh, the EOD teams, you know, the explosive ordnance disposal, you know, they they can, you know, efficiently, effectively, and accurately take apart bombs, you know, with with uh, very very little incident or negative outcome. You know, but like you said, at the same time, you know, you look at the, you know, the logistics surrounding that operation and, you know, there's slip trip falls, you know, there's cuts and scrapes. Um, I know we had a lot of situations where people would be the, the highest reliability in the field, but, you know, then there'd be a, a vehicle accident on Friday night, you know, so you're, you're definitely correct there is that, um, you know, being able to to manage the risk of a potentially high severity, uh, you know, potentially catastrophic operation is is often separate from the whole organization being high reliability. That that's important to note, definitely. Right, absolutely, and and so uh, so airlines kind of manage this by uh, um, risk transfer. The uh, you look out the window of your plane, uh, and most of the people you see on the ramp don't work for United. Uh, they don't work for Delta. They work for some sub sub subcontractor. Uh, and they and and actually uh, the data on these guys is really difficult to find. Uh, but uh, there's there's plenty anecdotal uh, information out there about just how. Um, how much carnage there is amongst these folks on the ramp. Yeah, definitely a lot of variables for sure. But um like heck, you know, and we can definitely definitely talk for a while. The, what I what I'll say for now is I, I definitely am uh, open invitation if you'd like to come back and talk more for sure. But, oh, well, um, thanks. thanks very much. I love to talk about this stuff. So uh the uh, it's actually an open invitation to any any listeners really if they want to uh, discuss this more um, then I'm easy to track down you can find me on LinkedIn um, although I have had a haircut uh, my pandemic hair is all gone so I'm actually looking much more respectable than I have been for the last 12 months you're you're now incognito <laughs> but yeah, yeah uh, ridiculous after a year without a haircut. Yeah, it's interesting. This this whole last last twenty months, it's it's been a shakeup for sure. But uh, um, well, heck, uh, before we before we tie it up today, is there anything else you'd like to like to bring up or anything you'd like to talk about? No, I think uh, I, I think the 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 thrust of, of my thinking in 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 the whole arena of of safety really is that. Um, well, think of it this way. How many languages have separate words for safety and security? Uh, that's a research project for everyone. 
and I promise you, you'll find that there are very few, English is one of the very few languages where there are two words for safety and security. And I think we, we have somewhat uh, led ourselves astray by um, using that word more than we use the word risk. And I, I, I really, my, the takeaway for every, if you, if you take nothing else away from this conversation, I would urge you to, to be thinking about risk rather than safety. Yeah, definitely good takeaway. But uh, well, heck, we'll go ahead and we'll and wrap it up for today. But um, oh, thanks very much, Corey. Oh no, thank you. I appreciate your time. And as as before, congratulations on your awards. Definitely well deserved. Yeah. And see you all in Austin. Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I'll be there for sure. Um, representing healthcare practice specialty. So, um, and speaking of which, with healthcare practice specialty, um, if interested. We definitely have some upcoming events. So we have a webinar that's going to be coming up on see, August 13th. We're going to be talking about occupational health and the partnership with safety. And then going into September, we will have a webinar on PPE, manufacturing and distribution. And then as our webinar, excuse me, podcast, um, definitely in addition to this great episode, we have some other ones. So we recently had a conversation with Abby Ferry, who is the CSP who's a great ASSP leader and also a safety consultant with a long and storied career. Great conversation there. We had a conversation with Dr. Nancy Ewell, who is a uh, longtime veteran healthcare leader and also a professor and the dean of a healthcare college and the president of a university. So we had a great conversation with her about all these different topics with healthcare safety. So definitely check those out. We're at anchor.fm slash ASSP dash HCPS dash And as always, if interested in any topics or any particular resources, please let us know. We'll be happy to get those to you. And we hope to see you on the ASSP communities where we have a lot of good conversations. And then also on our LinkedIn page, which is the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialty. And also on our new Twitter, which is at, excuse me, um, at, uh, goodness, ASSP HCPS. So with that said, we hope to talk to you real soon and everybody have a great day.